Hello, episode 36. Welcome back, everybody. Hope 2018 is treating you brilliantly and you're all living up to your expectations and, uh, well, I'm not going to say worrying about your um, resolutions, but we talked about that last week, a couple of weeks ago. Um, But I hope that uh, everything that you wanted to achieve so far has been achievable and is happening. And if it isn't, don't worry about it, you've still got a long way to go to the end of this year. Anyway, I digress before we've even started. So episode 36, this episode I'm going to keep the intro fairly brief because I have um, a wonderful guest in Mr Mark Farrelly and the chat that Mark and myself have is really very interesting and quite in-depth about a million things, mainly about Mr Quentin Crisp and Mark's relationship to him. Um, Mark is basically a, a one of the ultimate allies, I suppose you'd say, to the LGBTQ community, as he has been bringing Quentin Crisp and his rich history back to life for us in the UK since 2014, touring the country um, quite relentlessly with his self-penned show Quentin Crisp and Naked Hope. And then there will be more details about that uh, in the show notes and on Mark's website, which I will ask Mark to divulge the details about. Um, But more about that in a moment. Um, So speedily, this week's recommendations. Firstly, I'm going to go there. I am going to go there and say Miss Kylie Minogue, her new single, Dancing, which is a teaser, a taster of the new album, Golden. Um, I feel like it's her best, most Kylie-esque work in years, uh, with a slightly added country twang to it. Um, the lyrics are just brilliant um, and quite poignant and quite moving in a way, but at the same time fun and danceable. Um, she says, just at the end of the chorus, when I go out, I want out with beginning of the chorus, I want to go out, when I go out, I want to go out dancing, which some may just, and you could, read it both ways that she's just talking about when she goes out for a night out she wants to have a dance which she does but of course she is also definitely talking about just when it all ends that she wants to be having a good time um and she's clearly hitting a point in her life as we all are a certain birthday is on the approach and uh, i guess that's where the title golden comes from but um yeah she's uh i've heard that the whole album has a a slightly more thoughtful, um, but yet still fun and country twang, as I say to it. So anyway, I love that, and I hope it's getting played everywhere, and you download it if you haven't. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners have got it already on their phones. But however, if you haven't, go discover it. Um, And then lastly, as I say, keeping it brief this week, um, my other recommend for this week is a gentleman called Chris Stapleton who is appearing on a single with Justin Timberlake currently Um, and that's actually how I discovered him but however uh, I then went and looked at uh, his solo stuff and I very speedily got into um, 
one of his albums and i suppose it's country rock it's all got a country vibe to it this week um country rock which sounds really boring but it's not because well his album is called from a room volume two i haven't listened to volume one yet i don't know what that sounds like but his voice is basically somewhere between michael mcdonald and robert plant and if you don't know the who's who they are go and google um I, I I love it. I think it's something different and it's kind of, it feels right for this time of year. Um, I'll be going back to the uh, future soul R&B very soon, I'm sure, but that's just these week's recommendations. Um, other things just for you to watch out for, if you haven't had a look, if you are a fan of, and we've talked about it a lot, Drag Race, there is also an alternative show, which we may or may not have touched on. Um, called Dragula. Dragula is a very dark and horrific, horrific, I should not horrific, horrific uh, version of, well it's not a version of RuPaul's Drag Race at all, but it has certain aspects, competitive aspects, but the competitors in that show tend to be um, playing a much darker game um it's it as dragula it says it all in the name but go and have a look at that on youtube if you are a fan of drag um obviously rupaul's drag race all star season three has begun again and keith and i watched episode one of that last night and loved it our favorite contenders from the past coming back again have been so far we are holding out for ben de la creme and aja anyway that's enough about pop and drag and let's just just briefly tell you mark and i were in a show in greenwich um called chinese whispers and uh i talked a lot about that but basically mark talks a lot about his um his schooling in sheffield um his time in cambridge and how he how he felt like a bit of a fake um and uh, and how hard he worked to fit in um he talks about overdosing on learning which i love and um, his love of the pet shop boys um but how his own life and and some of the chaos that comes with life has led him to write two of his his two solo shows a one uh, called the silence of snow about patrick hamilton uh the writer and playwright and the the one that we talk quite a lot about which is the reason i wanted to get him in is um about quentin crisp and it's called quentin crisp and naked hope so anyway i think it's time just to hand it over to mr mark farrelly so here we are i am with mr mark farrelly in his home inviting me around to have a champagne and a chat about life and quentin and everything so, Mark, first of all, your age, where you're from, and a potted history of your beginnings. Some of this stuff I know already, but anyway, we're going <laughs> through the motions. Uh, well, I'm 41 next month. I'm from Sheffield. And, and well done for revealing your age and not... Uh, oh, but I'm, I'm really glad to be in my 40s. I think it's really yeah. good. Yeah, I'm happy with... I'm much happier. Somebody walked me down um, the Strand on the night before my 40th last year and said, Mark, you have to understand... This is a woman in her 70s. She said, Mark, you have to understand all the shit, all the turmoil, all the rubbish of your 20s and 30s. It's over now. <laughs> and you can enjoy it. Yeah. And I, I don't know, but 
I have enjoyed it so far, you know. I mean, my dad always said the cliche that life begins at 40, but, you know, uh, I see a lot of truth in it, feel I, a lot of truth in it. Yes, I... Yes, changes, positive changes and creaky knees, but you haven't got to the creaky knee stage yet, I'm sure. No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's to look forward to. Um, so, Sheffield, um, and schooling, just very briefly, how was school for you? I mean, I know you're fairly uh, academically minded, but how was... How was primary school and junior or kind of middle school for you? Well, I, I went to the local um, state school in Sheffield until I was 10. And I was <clears throat> um, a, a reputed... I don't remember this, but my dad says I was the class clown. Okay. I think some, some remark in a report obviously stung him. I, I didn't see it like that. And I should bloody know, because I was me. Yes, uh, I, I, I was in it. <laughs> um, I remember I liked it, and I got my first crush on a girl called Ruth Greasley. If you're out there, Ruth. Yes, yes, <laughs> fondly missed. Um, and then the, the, the axe fell on this terrible day when I got home, and my dad told me I was going to this all-boys private school um, at the end of the term that would be it and I thought this was a joke um, and I remember running through to ask my mum because she, she let my dad do the dirty work and I went, and I went and asked her and she was hiding in the lounge doing some ironing and I said this is a joke isn't it and she just shook her head and then I started crying oh no um, and I so I went to this school which was called Birkdale which is distinguished, which is distinguished anyway, but it was Michael Palin's old school. Mm-hmm. And having been there, I understand where much of Monty Python comes from. Right. It was very, very traditional. It, they didn't quite wear mortarboards, but almost. They sort of had invisible mortarboards. Right. Um, and the academic standard was much steeper than what I'd been used to. So for the first year, in which I also had to wear shorts and a cap, having turned up at my old school in jeans and a T-shirt, mm-hmm. um, I was very unhappy. And I was 24th out of 24th in report after report after subject after subject, over really? and over and over again, and laughed at and all that stuff. Again, I don't remember it, but Mum and Dad tell me that they would hear me cry myself to sleep. And I, I remember finding a few years ago a note that I'd written that was explaining why I was running away from home. <laughs> I mean, obviously I didn't, but I, it was that. Oh, I, I just hated it. I just because I'd been quite popular and starting to, you know, really make friends at the other place, and and I was amongst all these sort of future barristers and JPs, and they they weren't really my type, and yeah. they were a, a lot smarter than me and they'd they'd been doing French since the age of four I kid you not and we were also doing Latin and that that was like you know it's all Greek to me I I just couldn't uh, it it wasn't what was the what was the so the reason behind your parents moving you to that school was well I think that I have I have an older brother who's 11 years older and 
he had been through the state system in the 70s and hadn't really thrived in it and in fact started playing truant and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff mm-hmm. to me I think what my parents did was a bit of an overcorrection <laughs> right. from him that I think they wanted me to have a sort of tip top educational experience I mean they said they thought I was mucking about at the other one I don't, I don't think I was there was also my mum. It was a it was a, an avowedly Christian school, and my mum said she wanted me to have that experience. Okay. Your parents, quite my my mum more than my dad. No, not never fiercely. No. I mean, they have a. They're both people of faith, but it's it's a very interesting and inspiring form of faith okay. rather than a doctrinal one. Um. So that I think that's why they wanted me to go there. Um, and having having done it, I mean, there was no stopping it. You know, I had to go through it. Um, but I, di- I didn't like it at all for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I particularly remember the first year ending, and it was an extraordinary relief just to get the summer holidays and not be around these ghastly people. Yeah. And then I just had... I, I had to pull myself up the mountain because it was quite clear nobody was going to help me. And so... Over a process of about three years, I gradually rised up the... Rised? How clever. Rose. Rose. The school did really Yeah, I know. know. It's clearly... (laughs) Some money wasted, I don't know. Yeah, quite. Thousands and thousands of pounds. I rose up the academic ranks and managed to, by the time I was 15, 16, do really well. But it it was sheer grit. And it was just pouring obsessively over books because I right. was no good at sport. Uh, there was only one school play a year, which is thin gruel, really. Mm. You know, this, mm-hmm. we did it for three nights every December, and that was all you got. And I was good at acting, but the, the only, the only, and there were no girls, so I couldn't be, you know, a Lothario or whatever. So the only thing I really make any kind of impression with was academia mm. I'm not um, very academically minded really um, there's lots of people who right. can, kind of can't believe I don't read books very much and I don't I'm, I'm not that bothered really? oh I just I don't know <laughs> I'm just looking at your books <laughs> I, I know but, but that's, that's there's some scripts yeah it's all theatre related right. really um I, what I mean is I'm, I, I'm a pragmatic intellectual but I, I did it to pass exams and to find some purchase on the world and for people to sort of regard me a bit because a running theme through my and most people's lives is these periods when you feel invisible you don't exist mm-hmm. and I really felt invisible at that school and I you know it sort of stung me into doing well to kind of not not to sort of wag my finger at them and say ha ha look what I've done but just for myself just to yeah. demonstrate that I could do it because my parents placed no pressure on me whatsoever to do well academically nothing at all they had no academic background they both left school at 15 my brother left at 16 right so and my dad you know very much a sort of self-made businessman so they they didn't mind at all how I did but it was really I chose for myself to do well as a way of kind of making some kind of mark there because I was otherwise really, really unhappy. So it wasn't a natural 
it didn't. It, so you had to. You had. You say you had to pore over books. You had to spend a lot of time. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a very quick brain. I because and I know this because I've met people who have. I've met people right. whose brains are like quicksilver, and they can recite sonnets. I remember a guy because um, I did get to Cambridge. Well, yes. After many struggles, I applied to Oxford for two years and didn't get in. So I spent three years in the dugout until I got in. And uh, I remember sitting in the Eagle, which is a very famous pub on King's Parade in Cambridge, and this guy recited a sonnet to me, a fellow first year. Mm. And I said, my Christ, that's beautiful. Who wrote that? And he said, of course. He said, well, I did. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I did. Right. And I thought... Right, thank you. I'll get my coat. You know, I can't compete with these people. Um, I mean, I think when I was at university, I had the perpetual fear that the academic Stasi were going to break down the doors of my bedroom one so night. So it came with you? Oh, yeah, they were going to they were gonna drag me out of the bed, throw me onto Jesus Lane, throw all my belongings after me and say, you know, it was a terrible mistake, you shouldn't have been here, fuck off. Uh-huh. And... Um, but I think a lot of people feel like they're imposters in what they're doing. You know, that thing of, I can't believe it. I used to, there's, mm. a, there's a beautiful library at Jesus College in Cambridge where I went. And I always remember I used to grip the handrail as I went down this spiral staircase. And I used to say to myself, like a mantra, I'm still here. Mm. All the way through the three years, I couldn't quite believe that this was me and that I was there. Um, but but I, think, I think a lot of people feel like that in lots of situations yeah. in life. But despite, in spite of your, um, the, the anxiousness, that feeling that you weren't up to the levels of some of your um, comrades. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> but, but, but did you, but, but, well, but did you, there was, was there a point where you started to believe more, enjoy being in that world and oh I, I enjoyed it I just knew that I wasn't you still felt a bit like you were I wasn't the, I, wa- I wasn't the real deal right um, in the uh, in the sense that I think the real deal is this um, you know brain like mercury brilliance mm. which is kind of what I thought the whole place would be like I was quite surprised that most of the tutors and students weren't that stunning um, when you met the ones who were stunning, it was incredible. But I, I, I just wasn't like that. And I got there by working and working and working and working and working. I did the Oscar Wilde thing of pretending to my friends that I'd been in bed all day and rolling into the pub at 5pm. They didn't know I'd, I'd been up at 8am reading most of the day. <laughs> and then, nice. then pretending... Because one wants to look effortless. My hair's a mess. I've just rolled. Yeah. But okay. we do, don't we? No, we, no, we want We want to look effortless. Absolutely. We want to look like we can pick up a violin and play a concerto. We want mm. to look like we've gone on stage without any rehearsal. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, and so I, I, I certainly indulged in that Wildian deceit of, of pretending that I, I was a layabout when in fact I was, I was very, 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 very hardworking. It's interesting that you say that you find that you that kind of taking information in is was maybe still is uh, a difficult thing for you to do because considering what you're doing and considering the amount of information that you poured into your head for your current shows and even oh. the amount of 
we were in a show together, which I would have talked about in the, the introduction, um, called Chinese Whispers, and Mark, you had a huge amount of information. Forget actually just what you were doing, but the information that the character that you had to take on board for that character and the politics of a certain time and a certain place in the world. Yes. yes. But you do, you, you, it seemed, it, from the outside, seems effortless. I mean, that's probably... A well, I, yeah, I, I can do it. Um, but I, I'm not, I'm not wild about doing it, and no. I, I, I think a lot of my life since I left university, like many people's, is is a bit of a reaction to what happened at university. And react, uh, at university, I overdosed on learning, and I've been in flight from it ever since. Really, right? That okay. I, 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 I'm a bit of a layabout, and not not by some standards, but I. You know, I, I like reading biographies and diaries, you know, the nosy stuff. Uh, same. Um, but I get I get a lot of novels for birthdays and Christmas, and I smile and I think, never going to read that. I, I'm sure it's great. I just don't want to absorb my head in it. Mm. And also, as you said, I mean, if you're making shows and things, there's a lot of research involved in stuff like that, and that's enough for me. It really is enough. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose there's a lot of words in your head at all times, two mm. shows, and then anything else that comes along in the meantime. That's right, yeah. So. And you're like a sort of ball of sunshine. Uh, it, it, I mean, I think it's why a lot of older people love children and pets, because there's an there's a innocence to mm. them. And then, very quickly, you get told that certain things that you're doing are not right and mm. not acceptable. You know, in my case, um, a phrase that to this day goes through me is shut up, be quiet, shh, shh, you know, all of that, you know, you're annoying me, you're irritating me, be quiet. And, you know, maybe the child is irritating, but the child doesn't know that and it it takes grave wounded offence at the idea that it's upset the people that it relies on for survival, you know. When you are little, your parents are gods because you need them to live. And so the calculation, I think, that goes through a lot of children's heads is they are upset, but they are perfect because they're God. So it must be me that's wrong. Therefore, Mm. I'm at fault and there's something wrong with me. Mm. And then you lug that around with you for potentially the rest of your life thinking that you are deficient, defective, uh-huh. and almost anything can trigger it. And it leads to other grave consequences, like you think, well, I mustn't express myself. If I show who I am, I'm going to be mocked or laughed at. This then gets stirred into the pot with the way that all the other kids at school treat you, and the way your teachers treat you, because yeah. a lot of your, treat, uh, your teachers are, are lousy. And there's some great ones, but you're going to have a lot of lousy ones. And it only takes one. I had one, he was a maths teacher called Mr. Bentley, and he was horrible. Horrible man. Mm-hmm. He used to make sport of me every, every Monday. I had one of those as well, maths teacher, Mr. It, Long. It's usually maths. It's maths? Yeah. It's because we're creatives, you see. Of course But actually, is. really, probably was. I'm Do you know, I think, I think you might be really right there. I think they sense that you're not of their tribe and they hunt you. I... I genuinely felt that I'm looking back now thinking that was uh, because there were there was there was no connection English teachers there was there were there was 
geography. There was always something history, all of them. Yeah. But maths and computer science, at that point, nothing. No, no. there was no no, and they censor. Yeah. Well, they do. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's true, and he he certainly had it in for me, and it, it caused me great um, sadness to say the least. And mm. I think so. Anyway, what happens, going back to the Jungian thing, is that by the time you get into young adulthood, um, so much of that initial ball of sunshine has been eclipsed and darkened. So there's really not a lot left. Mm. And you've also acquired a a great degree of self-loathing, which is why teenagers do what they do, whether it's you know, Kurt Cobain then or Lady Gaga now, you know, this kind of, you know, all that Lana Del Rey thing where, God, I'm so fucking miserable. <laughs> you don't know what it's like being me. I, mm. But they don't know what it's like being them because they don't know who they are. Mm. And that's a, a dreadful fate and mm. an awful place to be. And I found, because I was, you know, lamentable academically and because I was... um you know, uh, risible sportingly um, and that I was going home and really not liking myself, that this dim flickering light on the horizon presented itself, Mm. which is the idea that you could dress up, affect a strange walk, possibly, if lucky, wear um, a monocle. And and it's the first thing I did in the play. I was the... um, Oh, the Duke of something or other in, in Merchant of Venice. Right. Um, Prince of Verona. I was the Prince right. of Verona. <laughs> and people laughed. And for the first time, they laughed with instead of at. And of course, it's cocaine. And I thought, yeah. right, uh, here we go. Game on. This is something I can, you know, be the boss with. Yeah. Um, and I followed it from there. And, and then, like, you know, many, many before and many after me, um, became obsessed by it. And that was the only thing that really, really mattered. And I became obsessed with actors. I was one of those people who, you know, when you watch a television programme, I, I know the credits, all the names. I know absolutely every minor actor in everything. Because right, okay. I, I, oh, okay. oh, I loved that world and all of those people. Jumping ahead a little bit, outside of your solo work, what have been the kind of highlights for you Oh, so, sorry, really... sorry, can I, can yes. I just tell you, you ju- you've just reminded me yeah. about you. We were talking about acting, and you know that, that thing I was saying that you, you want to hide away. And so that's why I did it, because this sort of alter ego version of me would get applause, because I couldn't accept applause myself. You know, you often see this with actors, you tell them afterwards... <laughs> How wonderful it was, and they they wince. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they wince. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's quite common. I, I certainly feel the same, and I don't ever. You don't hear it sometimes. You do. No. You can hear all the negatives, but when there's anything, even slightly complimentary, that kind of I can't remember. I can always remember a negative critique, yeah. but I can't quote positive reviews or personal critiques. No, exactly. <laughs> So I Very well. was in that uh, place of, of, again, being an imposter. Mm. And at some point in my 
you know, I left university at 24 and I, I, I was very fortunate. Like the first two years I worked really solidly. And then we got the great horror of unemployment when, you know, it really struck me that I hadn't got a job after two years. And at that point, around then, in my later 20s, I encountered a lot of directors who were trying to sort of break me down. Right. Which I perceived as, you know, destructive and threatening. But they were really trying to move me away from imposter-style acting to something realer. Mm. And it was, it was horrible to me because the place that I thought I could be most hidden, which was acting, mm -hmm. turned out to be the place where you had to be most exposed, mm -hmm. most raw, and most honest. Mm. And that was dreadful to me. I, 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 you know, and I think that's where a lot of people give up. Mm. I think that's the exact end of the pier for a lot of people. That, yeah, no, actually, I think you're probably right that drama, so drama school can, well, I guess drama school is one of the places we go through to get to where we, but actually drama school can be the place where you are put into, uh, you've done youth theatre or you've done school theatre yeah. and you're, I mean, people always talk about big fish in small pond, but actually, yes, that, but also you are being always being told everything's great and so you you decide that that's the way it's going to be and then you're actually put into a scenario where somebody is giving you genuine training as you say imposter that's an interesting um, term imposter acting and people we see people in the profession who are very successful who do it but get away mm. with it mm. but yes I think you're right I think that is a place where and sometimes I think those people are people who are actually probably some of the best because they accept that that is the that they are imposter acting, but they've been hiding behind it that actually this isn't this isn't necessarily the way forward, and that they're going to have to face a lot more fears. Well, you you're absolutely going to have to do that. The, the answer to your question ultimately yes is all the way back <laughs> after just after just six hours no. no the the answer to your question is that the reason I act is to try to reach some authenticity with myself and with the audience mm. but it used to be um, to pretend to hide to mollycoddle my own wounds uh, which is a a devious and dangerous strategy and mm. also to to be um, famous or important or lauded right. or <laughs> looked at and all of that I mean I don't personally give a shit about any of that mm. it's nice if somebody appreciates what you've done and they talk to you about it or they want your signature or anything like mm. that that's mm -hmm. a lovely thing of course it is but I usually say to them something like but what about you <laughs> because I, I, I remember in the days when I used to want to get autographs mm. um, I mean you know that I really like the Pet Shop Boys and I, I queued for what seemed like hours on the Strand once to get Neil Tennant's autograph mm. um, but you know 
I've realised that I'm I'm interesting too. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't really want anyone's autograph anymore. Yeah. Because and I don't I think it's a, it's a phase you need to grow through. Yeah. Doesn't mean you lose your. Um, it's not hero worship, but you fanboy. <laughs> fan fanboy. No, I think I don't. I think I think it'd be sad if you if you lost that completely. I think that's really important to have. But there's it a is. level it of. Is. But then there you're right. There's the level of. I can't be in the room with this person because they, because I'm so yeah. not worthy. That changes. And yes, you're probably not necessarily going to run up to said actor, said musician, and yeah. Mark Holman, we'll talk about later. Mm. Um, mm. Um, but yeah, it, you're right. It, it, it can't take you over no. that, to that degree because you're doing the same, you're, you're in the same place. No, you can, you can, yeah. you are. Um, it's the Titanic thing, you know. I mean, we're all on the same fucking deck here. Say hello to your fellow passengers, and mm. that's all they are. They're fellow passengers. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I can still fanboy with the best. I, I like a bit of it, but I, 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 you know, it's it's something that I think the more that you stand in yourself, the less you really yeah, want yeah. or need to do that because you're not co-opting. The meaning of your life onto someone else. Sure. I mean, we've all we've all done that. I mean, you know. Oh, I, I mean, nice. I never never was a big fan of Morrissey, but I know that to this day, I know people who basically live or die by what he says, and I think, well, come on, you've got to live your own life. So yeah, so obviously, we've I've had the pleasure of working with you on stage um, in we've mentioned Chinese Whispers at Greenwich Theatre in London uh, for mm-hmm. the world outside the UK. Um, and I started to talk to you about both of your your one man shows, uh, Silence of Snow, which is about Patrick Hamilton. And for listeners who don't know uh, a huge amount about him, uh, the starting place is Rope, the play. Anything else you give in brief, just to give to a, to oh, well, a... Ha- Hamilton was a sort of superstar writer of the thirties. Yeah, Rope, Rope, Gaslight. Very successful plays and movies. He wrote the novel Hangover Square. He has a, a relatively small output because he was an alcoholic. And he was dead at 58 on three bottles of whiskey a day. Mm. But he was a he was a firecracker. He was an amazing writer for a, a very brief period. He, he, he was a little bit like... Um, you know those music artists who are like massive for five years or something. And then where are they now? Black Eyed Peas. Black Eyed Pea. Do you remember Duffy? Duffy. I mean... Duffy. Where the fuck... It, well, she had a breakdown. That's what happened. Oh, oh right, I didn't know that. She okay. had a breakdown and couldn't take the business, you know, and she's, you know, sort of knitting wool in Cardiff or something, but... And why not? And um, why not? But, um, yeah, so Hamilton was, was like that. He, he was a literary Black Eyed Peas of the 30s. Huh. And, and he, he, you know, like a band, they fall apart, but Hamilton fell apart amongst himself. Yeah. Um, I just thought he was a fascinating character study, mm. you know, um, because I do think that we, we fuck our own lives up. And I wanted to portray somebody who fucks his life up before your very eyes mm. and hopefully make you think about ways in which you're fucking your own life up, because we all do do that. Mm. <laughs> so who came first? Because we're going to come to Quentin in a bit shortly, but was it Patrick or Quentin? Well, well Patrick, because... Um, I was uh, living a very messy life um, around the time that um, 
the idea came to me. Right. Uh, Patrick Hamilton had he had two marriages, but for a long time he sort of ping ponged between both women. Mm-hmm. I think for about twenty years actually. Mm. Um, I lived in a menage a trois um, when I was uh, thirty four, thirty five, uh, with two other women, mm. and. Um, it was very, very, very chaotic, mm. to say the slightest. Um, and I think, you know, my life was spiralling slowly but surely out of control. Mm. And I think I saw some of that in Patrick Hamilton. But of course, I mean, his life ended depending on how you view these things, I mean, it, it sort of ended pretty disastrously. Um, and I think I didn't want my life to go like that. Yeah. So that I made that story. Because I think all solo shows, you're telling yourself a story. <laughs> and yes. I was telling myself that story really as a cautionary tale mm. so that I didn't go down that road of, of you know nightmare really Mm. Um, so the first time that you ever performed that piece did you have to obviously in the rehearsals you had to be fully connected but to tell that story that was kind of slightly your story Mm. did you have to have did you did you I mean obviously now it's, you're in a different place with it, but initially, did you have to take yourself out of it to be able to put yourself into it, if that makes sense? To, to be able to perform, to be able to tell that story that's kind of yours? Or, or did, you just, did you just let go? Because that's a dangerous place to be as well, in a way. Um, yeah, I, know, I, I do know what you mean. I, uh, I, I'd had these very traumatic experiences. Yeah. Um, and they were eating away at me all the time. Uh, I was, you know, profoundly unhappy. Um, Because of the way that situation ended as well, which basically ended with um, neither of them ever spoke to me ever again, and that has held true to this day. You know, Mm. I've I've persona non-existent, which I have found ex extremely hard to deal with mm. um, even just a, you know a, anything would have helped Any a word or an email or something just to say that you exist and you mattered to me or whatever yeah, but they, they both chose to deal with it by the, the cut off and ghosting go- I know that fucking word no, ghosting it's dreadful yeah. it says so much about where we're at yeah, um, yeah they ghosted they completely ghosted me um, but, and in person as well, because I saw them both on the street and they, you know, you're not there. They looked the other way. And because I, I remember that idea that, you know, like with ancient tribes, if you wanted to hurt somebody, you would stone them. If you wanted to destroy them, you would ostracize them mm. and pretend they didn't mm. exist. And the worst thing you can do, the cruelest, the most savage thing you can do to a person's psyche especially someone who's been very close to you, is, is behave as though they don't exist. Absolutely. And that, that happened to me 
big styly. Um, and um, therefore, I think the only way forward, other than the contemplated suicide, was to make something out of it creatively. Uh-huh. But not in my case, although there's nothing wrong with this, but not in my case by doing a, a directly autobiographical piece, but by channeling it into uh, telling the story of somebody else's life, but bringing a lot of myself to it. And I think I just saw in a lot of Hamilton's life the sort of chaos that I had... Um, uh, sunk to really Mm. Um, and so it was very important I think in in rehearsal to try and just be really open and and cry and shout and scream and do all of those things that you might otherwise do with a therapist (laughs) and which I did do with a therapist as well (laughs) and of course you went through that so therapy the rehearsal therapy same thing um, it is the, the same. <laughs> it is the same. So, thing. Yeah, certainly in this scenario, yeah. Um, but so yeah, so you were secure by the time you came to, or securer by the time you came to to to, to be Hamilton. No, not really. No, no, no. Um, but I, I, I couldn't see any other way of of moving forward in life without sure. without collapsing and giving in. Um, it, it it took me. I remember when it all happened, I had this figure in my mind, the, n- the number two. Mm. It, kept, it kept on recurring. And what the two meant was it, it was two years of deep grief. It took me two years to stop crying about it. I remember crying on a train once and noticing a few weeks later that I hadn't cried and then a few weeks more. And so it was two years of crying and then, um, it, funnily enough, hot off the presses, I've just noticed since Christmas that it's now gone altogether. Right, I, okay. In the sense of, I mean, a friend of mine mentioned one of the people concerned at lunch today, oh. and I didn't kind of freeze when didn't. I heard her name. So it, it, it's taken me six years to get over it. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the girls I was involved with for much longer, we were together for 15 years, mm-hmm. and then somebody else came in for the last year. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me six years to get beyond it and to sort of feel hopeful and all right again, really. Two, two years of agony, and then another four years of this kind of indeterminate, floaty thing. Um, so I think these things take a long time, but in many ways, what helped I'm shying away from the way word saved but I think Mm. it's true what kind of saved me was making these shows um because it was a good outlet for it all and I I'm acutely mindful and sensitive and helpful towards everyone I encounter not just my friends about how they are and where they're at because Mm. I know that many of them don't have the luxury of making a one-person show Mm. And mm-hmm. indeed, they don't even necessarily have the luxury or the money that would afford therapy. Yeah. So I'm very, very fortunate in that sense. Yeah. But but I do think that I put back because I try to ask everyone I'm connected with, you know, where are you at? What's happening? How are you? No, I mean, what's really happening? Mm-hmm. Because I think 
what you see from people walking around the street or even having dinner with them is such a tiny, tiny pattern of what's really going on. Um, and having lost three friends to suicide. Um, right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm well aware that y- you can never truly gauge another person's level of self-acceptance at mm. any given moment. You can't tell. So just ask anyway. Mm. <laughs> just ask anyway. Mm. And it's amazing how much a text or an email or a suggested plan can lift somebody and help them. It might not save them, but I would have a go anyway. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Totally agree. And uh, and amazing that you were. Uh, the I mean, from that pain, you now have. You have two shows that you clearly love, mm. and that. Uh, that that are, are that seem to be growing and growing, continually yeah. growing. So, um, as you say, not everybody's that lucky that they have the opportunity to to express or afford. Or uh, we could talk about um, the health service and lack of funding. And but mm. yes, if you do have the ability to do that, and this is making you, as well as entertaining people, then. But that's why I, you know, after the Silence of Snow, I always do a collection for mine. Yes. You know, because uh, it, it, it's a chronic problem. We, we are dreadful, dreadful at mental health in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't, as a species, we don't know how to parent yet. We don't know how to do it. We're, we're still in, in the darkest of dark ages with parenting. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to do it. We don't realise how eggshell sensitive every child is about each individual word and gesture and comment or withheld comment. Um, we'd like to think it was a fuck sight easier than all of that. And mm. we can just come on, get on with it. And that's, that's how it was for me and all of that. Well, I'm sorry. It's a lot more bloody complicated yes. than that. Yes. And if you yourself have not sorted out your own backyard, then you pass it on to your children. Mm-hmm. We know this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the... Um, the, the Bible calls it the sins of the fathers. I mean, that sounds very portentous, mm-hmm. but I, I know, uh, and sexist, but I know what it means. And we, we are atrocious at it. And this is why we have such colossal and widespread mental health problems in this country. And especially in a country that's supposed to be so, in many ways, well endowed financially. I mean, it's not like people are. Uh, you know, in a widespread way begging on the streets. You know, most people are living in nice houses and they're watching The X Factor and they've got possibly two, even three cars. Mm. And are they happy? Well, not a lot of them, actually. Mm. And I will not shirk from talking about this over and over again because something's got to change. Something's got to alter. We're, we're bloody lousy at it. Yes. Oh. We have gone because I want to get back on track. Because <laughs> wow, did we stray? We strayed. That's all right. Straying is fine. Straying is absolutely fine. Um, so yes, of course, we need to talk about uh, Mr. Quentin Crisp. Mm. So what drew you to him? Where did where did that? I'm going to call it a love affair. Where did that start with him? Oh, you can call it a love affair. Sure. Uh, 
Well, uh, I um, about a year after I was single for the first time in my life, which was when I was 36, um, I woke up one day and I went, that's it, can't take any more, I'm out of here, I, the nearest window, I'm going to jump, fine. And, and you know, because I'd read endless articles about suicide online, and, you know, I, I used to Google things like reasons not to commit suicide because I was looking for some wow. kind of pullback. But I used to Google that a lot. And you get a lot of kind of American articles saying, well, because the sun will come up the next day. And, but, you know, yeah. and, I mean, they're really sweet and all of that. But it doesn't help when you're in this raging miasma of self-destruction. Because you can do a sun salutation at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Yes. And so, but... One thing I'd picked up from all these articles was, you know, if, you, if you're ever really going to do it, just do one thing. Promise yourself you'll, you'll ring somebody. So I rang uh, the first name in the address book, which was because of his initials, Adam Barnard. And Adam, I, I said, I'm, 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 I'm out of here. I, fuck this. Done. Um, and he said, can you, can you meet me at Waterloo? And I went, yeah. And he said, it was like a Tuesday. So I mean, he said, I, I'm, I'll, I'll get out of work by 11 and I'll meet you there. And I met him there. And it, he did on me a, a, a psychotherapeutic number that I, I, I'm since well aware of. There's a book called Love's Executioner by Irving Yalom, which is a, accounts of his uh, you know, adventures being a therapist. But in the introduction, he says, I'll tell you a shortcut. What you do is, you sit down across the table from a person who is having difficulties, and you say to them, what do you want? And all you are allowed to do is keep saying, what do you want? And you've got to ask it over and over again, no matter what they say. And relentlessly, Sooner or later, the person breaks down, starts crying, they scream something out. It's extraordinary. And Adam, Adam did the what do you want mm. on me. And one of the places that it led to with me was where it leads to with almost everyone is, you know, that wanting to be accepted. And he said to me, right, but you don't accept yourself. And I said, I, of course, you know, it kind of became Colonel Blimp. Of course I do. Naturally what I do. And he said, but you're not kind to yourself. And I said, I, of course I'm kind to myself. He said, Mark, you're not kind to yourself. And he said it over and over again. And I remember suddenly, <laughs> it must have shocked the restaurant. I kind of forced my palms and my hands down on the table. And I said, I don't know how. Mm. It was an alien concept mm. to me. Mm -hmm. And that was a real turning point for me. And Adam said, well, you know, until you're kinder to yourself, nothing will change. You know, you're, 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 you're being so nasty to yourself. Like, if you listen to your inner talk, if that was a friend talking to you like that, I don't think you'd want them as a friend. So... I decided to try and do 
um, two things for myself that day. I mean, that was the, the, the limit of my depressed ambition. I went to Lush and I bought a bath bomb that looked like a bumblebee and I bought it for myself. Mm-hmm. And I went home and I, I, I can't tell you, Matt, where this came from, but uh, I, I, there was something about Quentin Groves. I'd vaguely known about Quentin. And I remember he did a thing called An Evening With, and I sat down mm, mm. and I watched An Evening With Quentin Crisp on YouTube, and I remember laughing. Mm. And I also thought, now, if he can cheer up somebody who is as profoundly depressed as I am, there must be something in this. And although it didn't happen overnight, I think from that point, the idea of making a show about him was born. Right. That, that I wanted to keep on cheering myself up by being him mm. and I wanted to cheer the audience up because I think 90% of people are depressed at any one time possibly higher um, so slowly it, it, it germinated and then I sat down and I wrote it and again in a different way as, as with Hamilton, it was sort of keeping me alive mm. um, because it was something to connect with mm. and some something that was purposive mm. and um, when I looked at his life, you saw i mean there's a wonderful video on YouTube where he was filmed in his flat in nineteen sixty eight when he was sixty. And it was a Granada series, I think it was Granada, uh, called, you know, something called like Interesting Men. And it was a series where each week you went to meet some kind of human curio. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and naturally, somebody said to the producer, you must meet this bloke who lives in Chelsea <laughs> called Quentin Crisp. And he's filmed in his flat. And it's very much like a Beckett play. You know, he is... Uh, absolutely sure that life is over and he's waiting for death Mm. and he's so funny about it but utterly sincere and he feels that life has passed him by there's not a shred of self-pity to be detected in it but it's it's fabulously entertaining and moving and then kind of heartbreaking Mm. and I identified with that tremendously because when my menage ended, uh, a series of very unhelpful views took residence in my mind. Uh, the chief one was that I was unlovable, which is why they had rejected me and never spoke to me again. There must be something chronically awful about me. Mm. Also that I would never uh, experience any kind of relationship again because something as damaged and unwantable as this ain't, ain't going to be attractive. Mm. Um, and also that I was just waiting for death. So, I mean, I often joke about this period of my life and I say I, I, I sat on a sofa for two years, but I kind of did. Um, and um, I, I, I was just waiting for it to end, really. There, there was a Pet Shop Boys song came out around this time. You know how your favourite artists, it's weird how the music they bring out, it's like, oh, that's me right now. And it's happened over and over again with them. And they brought out an album at that time, Elysium, which I don't, is one of the few that I don't like. But mm. 
Um, there is a song on it called Invisible. And, oh my Christ, that was me. I, I, I just felt so non-existent. Uh, there's a lyric in it, you know, after so many years of being the life and soul of the party, it's weird, I'm invisible. Mm. And I, I really felt like that. I, I just, I wasn't here. And I didn't want to be here. Mm. And so I saw all of that in Quentin, that, that sort of deep sense of, you know, I, 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 you know I, I go out shopping and I meet people and all of that, but I'm not alive. I mean, I died in 2012. Mm. Um, so I'm just sort of going through some motions. Curiously enough, I was, I was exceptionally good at being supportive and helpful to other people. I discovered that strain in me that has continued to this day. But I myself was dead. Mm. I was a corpse. I don't think that's uncommon, actually, that somebody is in that... That, that they can still be of assistance. They feel... they Maybe it's because you're empathy is beyond is beyond empathy um, it is if I can't help me then the next person well that's maybe. right it's, in, a, <laughs> in a sense it's displacement mm. uh, I, I, and I, I to help people meaningfully you have to have been riddled with pain mm. riddled with it to really even dent the surface of where they're at mm. And I, I, I found it weird. All these sort of people from my life came forward and a lot of long-term friends started to talk to me on a much deeper level. People said things like, God, I'm, I'm having an affair. Uh, I, I'm, I, I want to kill myself. Mm. And uh, I, I just had, uh, I still do, these very, very powerful conversations mm. with people because I'd been, I, I'd sort of, I felt I'd, I'd sort of left life, really. Mm. I was like a spirit or a ghost. Mm. And I wasn't here. And yet I was here very powerfully as well. Strange thing. Anyway, yeah. I, I saw a great deal of that in, in Quentin Crisp. And um, so that was one side of it. Because the, the play that I do about him, it's it's 70 minutes long, but it's in two halves. There's no interval, but... The first half is based on him in the flat in the 60s and just talking about what his life has been and how he's, he's waiting for it to end. He has that beautiful line, I've come to the end of my personality, <laughs> which, which I thought I had. Um, and then the second half is he ages in front of the audience, changes in front of them clothing-wise, and it's 30 years later and he's on stage in New York and he's very mm. old and croaky, and he's doing um, an evening with Quentin Crisp. Mm. So that what I was trying to do with it was to cheer myself up. Yeah, so, I mean, it's fascinating that you came through that, and he is that person. He's very much the person who who, who didn't seem to need didn't seem to need a great deal materialistically but mm. also didn't seem to need to have a huge uh, posse of people around him and the way he lived well, no but but of course thus he did have a posse of people around him i mean he was like diogenes you know who lived in a barrel i mean he lived in beaufort street in chelsea and in, mm. in this 
dreadful flat where, which he never cleaned. Did you ever have you ever been to it? Just no, to I I probably should. Yeah. I'd like to, but um, uh, it, it was appalling, and and yet so many people went there and wanted to spend time with him, um, and it was because he didn't try. Yeah. He wasn't creating a enigma around himself. It just happened because, as you say, because he wasn't trying, because he was a, he was true to himself, and he was a fascinating person. Well, but one of, one of the things that you know, talking about parenting and childhood, one of the things that most of us have not grown out of is that thing where you're a baby and you want milk, so you go, Aah! and you keep doing that until you fucking well get it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the state in which many many people exist. I mean, look at Donald Trump. You know, I'd rather not. Well, I'd rather not. I mean, you know, a, a, yeah. a, um, a, a very ill human being. Yes, absolutely. But, but that's what he does. It's mm. like I want something, so I, I'll I'll shake my little fist until I get it. Yeah. And it's yeah. a it, it's a tremendously unhealthy and unattractive thing to do. Mm. I, I mean, you, so you might say, okay, wise guy. Well, why did he get elected president? Well, that's because there's a lot of similar people in the same state who identify with him and put him into power. But that doesn't make any of them right. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> and there's su- such a, a terrifying deficit of humility there. And I think that's a great thing about Quentin Crisp, that there's immense humility. Mm. I mean, most people who know of him are familiar with the idea that when he was beaten up in the streets, you know, what used to be called queer bashing, um, as far back as the 1930s, yeah. when that happened to him, and it's in the John Hurt movie, The Naked Civil Servant, just as he's about to be kicked in the stomach for the 18th time, he looks up at them and he says, you know, I seem to have annoyed you, gentlemen, oh, yes. in some way. Yes. You know, that, that extreme Edwardian courtesy mm. towards the thug. Mm. Um, mm. And in the show, uh, for much of the first half, I do it barefoot. Uh, and that was I, I I don't know whether anyone picks up on it, but I did that as a um, it was a really an allusion to Christ. Okay, okay. It's just the humility of it. Yeah. I mean, Quentin jokes in the Naked Civil Servant. He says because uh, Quentin was born on Christmas Day, and he says I I was I born on the twenty fifth of December, uh, the same day as Jesus Christ, the gentleman with the hardest luck story of them all. <laughs> that's so Quentin and you know without I'm not sort of claiming that he was a a a godlike figure but I I just made an analogy between the way that Jesus had a humility about him as far as we know and I saw that in Quentin you know that there's a there's something tremendously appealing about being defenseless Mm. and our world the world this sort of capitalistic nightmarish uh, Orwellian Gilliam-esque engine that we've made that we're all being whirly-yigged around in. Um, and it's getting worse. And it's getting worse uh, because it can't do anything but get worse because yeah. that's the way, that's its DNA. Um, what it lacks the most is a sense of surrender and humility. Mm. In, in place of it, they've substituted entitlement, aggression, uh, and all kinds of other horrible diseases of the soul. Yes. And uh, 
Quentin, to me, was an antidote to that. And I live in that world. Mm. And I um, greatly mourn many things about it in the world that I live in and that we all live in. Um, so I basically decided one way to cope with that was to go around the country in a blue wig. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, and, 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 and share the ideas of somebody who's got a radically different interpretation on life. Yeah. And one that never harmed anybody. One that makes people laugh and smile yeah. and makes them feel uplifted. Yes. So, of the two, because you say you cover both periods... You cover two periods. Uh, yeah. You cover the, the kind of the thirties and then um, uh, New York nineties. Yeah. Um, for you personally, what's? Did you have a preference? At, is the, is either of the, the the time frames more appealing to you? Is no, it... because because you can't have one without the other. Yeah. They 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 are so mutually interdependent, and uh, they explain each other. Mm as phases of your life you know like I was saying that it's it, it's taken me all this time to come out of my sadness and grief about the losses that I went through a few years ago um, but you know would I rescind that journey if I could rewrite my own history oh no no I, you've, you've got to go down to the depths to reach the heights and vice versa uh, and if you don't do those things, you don't know what you're made of or what you're capable of. So you're, you're scarcely, what, 20% of who you could be? Mm. I mean, Quentin says in the, towards the end of the second section, he says, to arrive at the end of your life thinking, I never did anything I really wanted to do must be one of the most profound miseries the human soul is capable of feeling. So discover who you are and be it like mad. Mm. And that mm. is mm. the line mm. that is most quoted to me afterwards. Right. People pick yeah, up on that so much because it's true. You've got to do it. You've got to live. Mm. You've got a duty to live. Mm. And, um, you know, playing small... Hiding away, lying to yourself with, you know, worn out lines like, well, that's not for me. I don't really do that kind of thing. That's what other people do. All that restrictive, poisonous, suffocating bullshit. Um, it's got to go. Yeah. And you've, you've got you've to live. Yeah. And, you know, in my case, it, it, <laughs> if it takes some guy who died in 1999 and who looked ridiculous with his strange haircut, um, to make one understand that, then fine, you know? I mean, let's play him. Let's yeah. get on stage and do him. Because I think he's got something to say. And that's, that's the only thing I think that we ever ask of art. I mean, make me think, make me mm. feel. Mm -hmm. It should do. Yeah. Um, kind of slightly away from those kind of the practicalities of playing somebody so iconic and we have talked about this away from here but just for the listeners how did you deal with the vocal side of it because his voice is so recognisable and without just doing an impersonation what, what was your approach well, to, I, to that? Yeah, I, I mean I didn't 
I didn't really try to impersonate him um, because um, I, I don't know. I in a show about being yourself, to to do this facsimile of someone else seems contrary to the fucking enterprise. So I mean, I what I do is I, I, I you know explore some of the mannerisms of his voice, but without making a big thing about it, and also. You know, the, the, there is a very particular rhythm in which he spoke, which is da-dum, 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 da-dum. Da-dum, da-dum, da-da. It always goes up at the end, this last note. And then, and then I went yeah. to the bus stop. You know, mm-hmm. and that, that's... Mm-hmm. It, it's, yes. To listen to 70 minutes of that would drive you berserk. Yes. So I don't, I don't really do that. I just, you know, get as close to it as I need to but keep some of my own voice in it. Yeah. In fact, there's a bit in it where he's in court making a speech and Linda Marlowe, who directed it, she said, I think you should do this whole bit in your own voice. So I do. And nobody, nobody ever says that was weird. They just yeah. get it, you know, um, because it's a play about selfhood. I, I, I think all good plays are about selfhood. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's an interesting thing because a lot of people will probably question that. Uh, but as you say, it's not about that. But interesting that you. I think you've got to. You've got to be. You've got to be able to do. Something that you take it and then you you, you let it. It you it's, it sinks in and then you you walk away. You well, Michael Sheen was in when he was in Frost Nixon. Mm. Apparently, I never saw it on stage, but he would come on and in the opening speech, he did you know hello, good evening, and welcome, and then. After that scene, he would ease off on it and drop out of it a bit. Mm-hmm. Because actually that direct impersonation, somehow it just doesn't work for drama yeah. if, if, you, if you lean on it too much. Yeah, you're right. You'd, you'd tire, the audience would tire of it being so specific. Well, that becomes the issue, them, yeah. doesn't it? You're not hearing the story. Yeah, yeah. You're just listening to the sound yeah. and the cadence. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get back to my... Lead. Yes, come on. Yes, <laughs> goodness me. We do have to drink some wine soon. Um, so, oh my goodness, yes. Um, oh yes, the outline of positive history of Quentin. We're kind of going there. Um, what would be, yeah, actually because I do try and keep the listeners, hello listeners, I always talk to you, in such a way that you are there, but you're not there, but you are, you're, you're with us right now. Um, that would be a good point of reference for them to go and learn more about Quentin if they don't know. Obviously, you've, we've talked about Naked Civil Servant as a film and then obviously the book. Yeah. Is there any other things that you found along the way? You mentioned a few YouTube bits and pieces. And, well, or books. I'm, I'm enormously tempted to say no. Uh, <laughs> come and see. Come and see Naked Hope. <laughs> But, but if you're if you're in uh, Australia, I, I, or... well, I, no, I, I do think you should read the book, The Naked Civil Servant, yes. which Quentin wrote in 1968 when no one had heard of him. It, it's hilarious, it's heartbreaking, and it never lets up from first page to last. Mm. It's really, really worth reading. Yes, um, the film, because it is born so much of the spirit of Quentin's beautiful book, is glorious, and yes. I think John Hurt is magnificent. I think John Hurd is magnificent full stop. Yes. But, um, I would also, yes, look on YouTube at um, 
it, it's a film by a man called Dennis Mitchell, um, and it's about 26 minutes long, and it's Quentin in his flat around the time that he'd written The Naked Civil Servant. Wonderful, Beckettian and weird. Mm. And in the 90s, Quentin published some New York diaries under the title Resident Alien. Oh, yes. They also are hilarious and, you know, um, needle-sharp. Really, really worth reading. Some of which was turned into a show as well. There were, well, there was another play about Quentin. There was a one-man show Resident about called Resident Alien. Alien yeah. In about 15 years ago. Yeah. And Betty Bourne did it. That's it. And I saw it. Um, oh, did you? Yeah, when I was 25, I saw it at the Edinburgh Festival at 11 in the morning. Nice. Uh, and I remember I thought it was wonderful and my friend thought it was dreadful. Right. Um, I, I just remember there was a great... Because he, he plays Quentin as a, right at the end of his life, very old man, in his flat in New York. Yeah. And there was a, a moment where he's tr- he, he makes a meal on stage and he's trying to fork this potato... And he doesn't quite manage it, and it just falls to the floor. And he looks over the armchair down at the potato, and then he just goes, gone forever. (laughs) And that that was Quentin's approach to uh, living, (laughs) you know, housework and all of that. What's Um, the story about, I'm trying to remember, about washing up, but about you can... The fish barrier. Fish, that was it, the fish barrier. Fish barrier. It was this ridiculous thing he said. I mean, everything about housework he said was ridiculous. You know, all that everyone knows after the first four years, the dust doesn't get any worse. Yeah. But he he said, you know, if if you're washing up, um, you should um, uh, you can reuse the plate the next day, and then the next day. But the problem is, if you have fish, you can't really eat off a plate that's had fish. So that's the fish baron. You, could, you that's going a bit far. I mean, it's you know, I mean. But again, it's that thing of uh, hyperbolically expressing something yeah. in order to get people to worry less about, for example, housework. Yes. <laughs> so I, I think people should uh, look at those things. Yeah. Um, and we will allow you time to sell your show. Oh, because good. actually you do need to sell your show. No, you do, don't you? do no. Yes, you do need to sell it. You need to sell it more because you're always busy and your audiences are packed out. But however, you can always do with more. Mm. Um, sure. Yeah, actually, that's a big... So how many years with Quentin now, then? Uh, three and a half. Three, okay. Yeah. What Do you know what number of performance you're at? 70. I did... Litchfield, oh. last, Litchfield last week was 70. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm doing... About twenty five this year, so you know if I if I you try and set yourself target with these things. If I got to a hundred, that'd be nice. I've never done a hundred of anything. Uh, I did I did a, a Stephen Fry play called Latin many years ago, mm. uh, and we got to eighty something. Right, and we did quite a lot of Virginia Woolf over two runs, but I've never done a show a hundred times, and that would be quite a nice little thing to do. And you still, you still, you still clearly love. There's no, you're not bored. You're you don't tire of it. Or... No, I mean one of my favourite movies is With Nail and I, and uh, it's the only film I know where every time I watch it, I hear a line I feel like I'd never heard before. I mean the script has that level of richness to it, mm. 
and Quentin's language, which I'm primarily working with in Naked Hope, is, is so dense yet light simultaneously. It's, it's odd. It's this kind of throwaway depth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I definitely hear something each time that I've um, not heard which before. Which is, if you can get, if that can keep happening, then... It's endless. Is there a point where you think you would sign it off and say, right, I'm done now, or use it just until the audiences stop coming? I th- I th- well, I always... I th- it could end tomorrow. Mm. You know, as, I, as I've said, um, I think the first year we did it, where we did Edinburgh at the Gilded Balloon, we did a fortnight at the St James Theatre, which is now called The Other Palace. Yes. And then we did... Yeah. yeah, and we did a tour of it. And I thought... Well, hey, that, great, mm. you know, that's that. So, uh, but I never expected to do so much more. So, it, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared for it to die. Um, Does not show any signs of that? <laughs> no, but, but, you know, it's all fickle, isn't it? And stuff can change and you can, you know, you can sort of book a run in somewhere and it doesn't quite fly. And I don't know, you just keep trying, yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I think the answer is what you said. That if if it got to the point where everyone just said we've seen it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think that's likely. And I think if people like Newcastle Pride are still booking you, then yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a sure yeah. sign that there's there's life in them their hills. Um, yeah, that's the other thing. The 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 most kind of you talked about the uh, reaction from the gentleman. Well, we were talking beforehand. I don't think this is before we started. Uh, about the gentleman, mm. um, if you could just share that with us again. If you I could share that. Yes, I think I could. Thank you. Uh, yes, I I did this show in Litchfield, which is near Birmingham, last uh, week, and a man came up to me afterwards um, to buy a copy of the script from me, and he said to me, he said, "Oh, uh, I hated it," and. You know, you're sort of blindsided by that because you're expecting universal love and adoration. (laughs) And I said, eventually I sort of said, well, and why are you buying the script? And he said, well, you see, the the show was like looking in a mirror because you were standing on the stage and you were talking about authenticity and being who you are. And I thought, well, I'm 60 years old and I've never never done that. No, I don't know who I am really. (laughs) And I've, I've tried to fit in all my life. I've done jobs that I hate and I've, I've spoken to people and tried to befriend them and I never liked them. So, um, yeah, I hated it and uh, thank you very much. <laughs> but that, that's a, a sort of nutshell of, of what the show at its best can provoke. Yeah. Um, that it makes people question their own behaviour. I mean, in his book, I just wrote, it's never too late. Okay. Because it's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 60 not. or... 20 or whenever. Of course not. No. God, no. I mean, because authenticity is so precious yeah. that it, it just overrides 90 years of, of, of absence. Yeah. If, if you're able to be present and to speak your truth, and it, it's just a beautiful thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what the show can do for people. I mean, I guess what you sometimes find is that people's idea of Quentin is that he's this sort of immensely camp figure. Mm. 
and that he's some sort of cross between John Inman and Boy George. Uh, if you can, if you want to imagine that, even. <laughs> it's, it's an um, idea. And um, they're often very, very surprised at the, the depth of what they encounter. Yeah. More than one person has said to me, I mean, somebody said once we did it at the King's Head in Islington, and somebody said afterwards, uh, oh, yeah, thanks for that. I, I wasn't expecting the therapy session, but thanks. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> it is like, especially the second half is very, very, all that, you know, who are you? Yeah. Where are you going? What are you about? What's going on here? It's very searching and penetrating yeah. in that sense. And because they've laughed so much, and because he's been there in his rouge and his blue wig in the first half, mm -hmm. and they oh, slightly a figure of ridicule clown like really mm -hmm. um, then they're sort of willing to let him do that kind of stuff but um, I also yeah the, the John Inman Boy George thing that I, I think people are they expect it's going to be very camp very bitchy and um, that he will reveal himself to have been this terribly promiscuous person mm. and of course he was none of those things and my take on it really is that, you know, with Quentin, it's not about sexuality, that he was, this sounds very grand, but that he was beyond that, mm. that he was just about personhood. He, his, his idea of, of what he wanted to say to people was, you must be whatever you really are. Mm. And that what he was saying was, in my case, what I really am is phenomenally inconvenient, but I'm going to be it anyway. Mm. And what you may wish to do is be who you are, if, if, if you don't want to be capsized with regret on your deathbed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it wasn't per se about being gay. It was just about being who you are. Mm. Because I... I understand why you have a, often a ghettoization in gay culture, but I'm doing I, it right here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I don't really think yeah. that I, I get it. But I don't think it serves people, and that I, I, I really look forward to the day when uh, being gay means nothing more than having green eyes or brown hmm. hair. It, it's simply part of your genetic make who you are that nobody would think to talk about it or question it yes. or much less persecute it so that there is that element to it the issue of sexuality in the show but i i think it, it's it, it you know once you are able and society will allow you to get over <laughs> your sexuality then you can deal with the real business mm. of well who the hell are mm. you you know because in in a I, I, as I said, I I hope one day that all that stuff, in the best sense of the word, becomes an irrelevance. Yes, and I think it's I think it's great that he is still seen as a an icon of pride and all that mm. stands for. Um, and as you say, people assume that he was. I suppose he was acerbic, but not 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 bitchy and mean and that side of that's the preconceptions that because he looked the way he did and that's people who haven't really investigated I think they just kind of see the surface John Inman Boy George thing you mentioned yeah, yeah. Boy George loved the show didn't he I, I noticed that today on your 
website. I've never seen that quote. Though. Yeah, he's he a, came to fan. he came to see it um, uh, just over a year ago, mm. and um, yeah, he was delightful about it. I mean that that because they spent they did spend time together, I believe, in well in New York. Yes, I I think one of Culture Club's records um, at the very beginning of it. There's a crackle, and this voice goes, Popularity breeds contempt. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's Quentin. And, yes. Um, and then the record starts. And, I mean, I, when I was little, Boy George was a colossal icon. Mm. See, I discovered Quentin Crisp because, I mean, I, I was vaguely aware, but I kind of investigated more because of because of Boy George funnily enough yeah. that's how it started I I, I, I you know I, I, I don't know whether I liked him or not but yeah. you just he, he was the 80s yes when I was little he was the 80s yes. and I remember when I knew that he was coming to the show and that induced all the attendant nerves yes but what was really really great for me was that once the music kicked in, which is my cue to walk on into the space and turn and address them, yeah. I was nervous. Yeah. It's fine, I could see him, but it, I, again, that's part of what I'd learned through doing the show, that it's, well, it's my turn now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I love mm-hmm. listening to your records, but it's my go now. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but yeah, he, he, was, he was great, and he tweeted, you know, very supportive things about it, and Marilyn came as well. Oh my goodness. Um, yes. So yeah, we had an, an 80s night. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he's just um, he's as as Boy George said, Quentin is somebody who should not be forgotten. Yes, and he's very resonant right now. He's very of the moment, and and always will be because he's not. Although this is can be wonderful, but he's not stuck in a particular struggle. He is part of a timeless effort to become who he really uh-huh. are. And that message will never, ever go out of fashion. No. I mean, the fact that, you know, he was beaten up on the streets for 30 years. And I've met people who'd seen him after he'd been beaten up. I met a woman who was a little girl at the time. And she said, she, oh, yeah, Quentin, he used to, he used to come around and have tea with my mother. And I used to come in the kitchen and he was being bandaged up by my mother really? in the kitchen. Wow. He'd been beaten up on the way there. You know, and that's very powerful. And after each show, I do a collection for Gallup which is G-A-L-O-P, mm-hmm. which is a terribly underfunded organisation mm-hmm. um, that tries to help uh, in, in London uh, violence against LGBT people. Oh. I mean, as I say to the audience, I, I, I didn't know this was still an issue, really, in my sort of comfortable naivety. And I went to a n- club in... Uh, Clapham where a friend of mine was singing about three years ago mm-hmm. and a guy walked in and he was such a fucking mess he was beaten black and blue and you can't help it I said, what happened there and, oh he was he was beaten up on the way out of here you know it was a gay club mm. um, two probably well exactly so so I you know I, and we've made a, a, a great deal of money for them um, brilliant but the, for me the the, the, the bigger piece of the show, the bigger issue, is, is, is hopefully what one day lies beyond that, which is where the only issue in town is, is selfhood and not who you're attracted to, which I've, 
I've never understood why that's an issue. Well, yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, so say all of us. I mean, a bizarre thing to be hung up on. Absolutely. Weird. And currently, it's, things are back on the turn again. So yes, having the people, I think actually people to read a little bit about experiences from thirties, spe- specifically this man's, um, are uh, would be useful to a lot of people at the moment and give them hope and that you'll survive. Well, it, it's it's perspective and, and it's perspective. hope. And yeah. it's, it's realising that it's possible to be tough as nails without losing your vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the great paradox that Quentin embodied. Mm. That, I mean, when my mum read the, the script of my show, she just, she'd never knew much about him, but she texted back and all she said was, what a brave man. Mm. So it's, it's the courage and the humility is very attractive to me. Yes, completely. Um, what do you think actually what do you think he would what would be his views on you as someone playing him I mean obviously he, he encountered John Hurt but let's let's forget whatever they may have had as a mm. friendship or how do you feel he would what do you think he would say about your this it, it depends which stage of his life he was at let's say the the latter part oh then he'd hate it I think I think he, you know, uh, <laughs> Mr. Farrelly strides about the stage doing an implausible impersonation of me. You know, I mean, he would he because he became rent a quote, sure. And like everyone who has a strong public image, he became a parody of himself. I mean, I I think even Hitler became a tribute act by the end. You know, uh, it's true. I mean, mm. you you you. Ha- I've got to be like Hitler. Mm-hmm. I've got to be what people think Madonna is like. Yes, yes. I've I've you know you you play up to this stereotype. Madonna and Hitler. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they're both fascists. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh... <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but, um, <laughs> So I, I think, you know, Quentin, towards the end of his very long life, he lived 90 years, Yeah, spanned almost the entire 20th century. Uh, he, he was very contrarian. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't, I don't, I think he would have been polite to my face because he was always terribly nice. Mm-hmm. You know, I want, what, I want what you want. And then he might have written a review for the papers and, and said it was it was an appalling thing and I should get my own life, you know, and all of that. Um, but I love that you see that. Oh God, I don't listen. I don't. I don't hear a wish at the man at all. And I, I know that he was like anybody else. He's very complex. And what we do with everyone we like, whether it's friends or people in the public eye, we treat them like a buffet bar. We just take the bits that we like, and you know, we leave the anchovies that we're not so keen on. And I think. There were, there were plenty of things about Quentin that were not so good. Um, I, I, and I, the only bit of criticism I had in any of the reviews was for that. But I took the view that I wanted to have maximum emphasis on joy. It's called Absolutely. hope, for Christ's Absolutely. sake. And I wanted people to come out on a high. Yeah. And if they wanted to go and learn more about him and some of the less impressive things that he said in his long life then they were free to do so. But again, who of us hasn't said things that weren't oh, so hot? Yes. You know? And that's another, could be another show entirely. 
Yeah, and 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 that's and that's a show that some people would like to see. Mm. But when you're making a show about somebody, you have to make choices. Yeah. And I made a choice to uplift people. Because that's and why he came into your life in the first place. He did. For that reason. He did. And the, the, yeah. there's sadness in the show. And mm. there's some, some really dark moments. But I haven't, for example, gone into all the controversy about when he said AIDS is a fad. Because, yes. Oh, yes. as you implied, that really is a whole other show. Yeah. And in 70 minutes, I haven't got time for that. Yeah. I'm not afraid of it. But you have to make choices. Yeah. And there's a whole, there's a whole world of reasoning behind why he was saying that and where he was in yes. his head. And as you say, that's a that's a separate story. Absolutely. Um, importantly, tell us first of all, uh, website, social media, where people can find you. Uh, where the my website is uh, markfarrelly.co.uk, F A W R E W L Y. Twitter is. Mark at Mark Farrelly UK. Um, yeah, and you are on tour throughout the year through into the summer. Well, this show is going on a tour between April and July, and it's. I mean, if you're in London, the actually the first show uh, is at the Churchill in Bromley, which I will be going to. You're splendid, and. And then it's going off to, you know, Dublin and Cheltenham and all these places, Suffolk. And then it's doing five nights at uh, the, uh, the Broccoli Jack. Oh, yes. Which, I, you know, is, is just perfect for it because it's so intimate and you can touch the audience. Yes. Not, not that Quentin would ever touch anybody, <laughs> yeah. but uh, physically. Um, and then it's going to do two dates in July somewhere central London but I'm not going to say because it's not been confirmed yet okay. and I don't like to tempt fate but if it would be a really really nice place for it it will be somewhere dead central for pride in July um, yeah and, and, and uh, so you can find out about that on pride all, affiliated websites and yes it's all, it will be on pride and also all the dates are on my website yeah, so the website's the good place to go. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much. We probably need to have some more wine and both go and have a wee now. So thank <laughs> you so much for, uh, for inviting me to your lovely home. And, uh, well, we'll put some pictures on the website. Said we won't. Anyway, thank you very much. Pleasure. Final note, ladies and gentlemen. This week is the launch of my website specifically for the podcast. 40somethinggay.co.uk and it's 40 the number somethinggay.co.uk with no spaces um, it's also uh, going to be on Facebook 40 number 40 somethinggay.co.uk and there you can leave comments you can chat to me it's going to be very much more it's going to be a lot more easier for you to interact shall we say so go and have a look at 40somethinggay.co.uk and get chatting to me and get commenting on episodes and your thoughts and yes join in the fun and it's designed by mr daniel judd at tide mills digital so uh go and investigate that further and i'll give you more details about him and his website next week cheers bye